are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Luke 4, 14 through 30. And then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then they began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum? And he said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years, and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, and they drove him out of town, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built 
so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Amen. Thank you, Barb. Good morning again, everybody. So I feel like I should give a little health update. Um, If you're a regular here, you know that for the last month and a half, roughly, I've been fighting off this mystery illness. Finally went to the doctor earlier this week, and it turns out I have bronchitis, which makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, So I've been on medicine for a few days now. They also prescribed me this uh, trendy little uh, inhaler. It's very asthma chic, I've been calling it. Um, That's good for if I I go into a coughing fit or anything like that. But um, the doctor told me I had to rest, so I took off most of this week, got a lot of rest, And she told me that I would be good to come to church. I'm not contagious or anything. And I'm even good to preach if I can rest my voice. But of course, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home, so that didn't happen. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Maybe this will be a shorter sermon. Who knows? Um, So I got to tell you a little bit about my background myself to kind of get into this. Uh, When I was a kid, like in high school, We're talking like late 90s, early 2000s, not to date myself too much. I wasn't, I wasn't really a bad kid, so to speak. Like, I I didn't get in too much trouble, um, but I did run with kind of a sketchy crowd. Um, We had piercings in non-traditional places. (laughs) We would dye our hair a lot of unnatural colors. We wore a lot of black. Um... We tended to be a little loud and obnoxious, especially in public. Like, uh, being offensive was basically seen as a virtue. These are all things that I have clearly outgrown as an adult, um, I assure you. And I remember this one friend of mine back in the day, he used to wear this pretty offensive T-shirt. Like, it was pretty bad. I'm going to warn you. But it was simple. It was a black T-shirt, white letters. And it said the following, if Jesus comes back, we'll kill him again. Now, that's a pretty bad shirt. Like, that's an offensive shirt. There's nothing edifying about that shirt. That's not building anyone up. I wouldn't recommend you wear it. Um, It's clearly expressing a very kind of confrontational, anti-Christian, anti-religious message. And I also don't think the manufacturer of that shirt was trying to make a deeper theological point like I'm about to do. (laughs) And yet, there's something about that shirt that has always kind of haunted me. There's something about that statement that I just can't shake. If Jesus comes back, we'll kill him again. We just read this passage where a supportive audience turns on Jesus in a heartbeat and tries to kill him, tries to throw him off of a cliff. Like the crowd is on board with the first part of his sermon, but by the end they want him dead. And then I look at the church today. And not just this church, I'm talking like the church broadly, the church in America, the church globally. And I return to a a passage like this. And I worry that my friend's shirt might be right. 
If Jesus showed up today and preached a sermon like this in one of our churches today, and if, if we actually knew the implications of that message, we might try to run Jesus off a cliff. So with that ominous start, let's unpack this passage a bit and see if we can figure out what's going on here. What is it about Jesus' message that is so offensive to this original audience? And what might it say to us today? You've got three parts to this passage. Um, There's the first part of Jesus' sermon. Then there's the initial reaction of the crowd, which is really positive. Then there's the last part, the, the second half of his sermon, where Jesus unpacks what he's saying, and the people try to kill him. Jesus begins his teaching by opening the Isaiah scroll. That would be the, the book of Isaiah for us. It's in the Bible. We actually have a Bible study every Tuesday at noon that looks at the book of Isaiah. Same book. And he reads the following passage. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolls up the scroll and sits down, because that's how it worked back then. You would stand to read the Bible and then sit to preach on it. You can try that in here sometime. And then Jesus delivers one of the shortest sermons of all time. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd eats it up. They love it. They are so impressed. What gracious words. Isn't this Joseph's son? And it's really important to understand that positive initial reaction. The way this passage is often remembered, the way we talk about it, um, we tend to think that Jesus you know, reads this messianic prophecy. Then he essentially says, yeah, that's me. I'm the guy. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we often misremember. We think that that is when the people try to run him out of town. They are mad at him for being a heretic, for claiming to be the Messiah. But that's not how it went down at all. These people are waiting for a Messiah. And if you're not familiar with the term, uh, Messiah is actually a political title. It means anointed one. And it refers to like a powerful king or a leader who was anointed by God to save their people. At this point in history, we're talking like early first century, Jesus' people, the Jewish people, have been living under the oppression of foreign empires for about 500 years. 500 years without independence, without self-determination, without freedom. And Nazareth, Jesus' hometown where this story takes place, was a hotbed of political revolutionaries. So Jesus shows up in his hometown synagogue and announces that he's the one who's going to bring deliverance and salvation to his people. And the people love it. Now, I'm not so sure the first part of this message would actually go over very well today. I don't know that it would get a very warm reception in the church. Jesus is giving the opening chords 
like the thesis statement, if you will, for his entire ministry. And it begins with good news for the poor. Can we talk about a topic like poverty in the church? Like, I mean, like, really talk about it. Get into the nitty-gritty of all the various factors that drive and contribute to poverty, various proposals for things our society could actually do to do something about poverty. Can we get into that? Or would that be a little bit too political? Can we talk about things like income inequality in church? Can we talk about how it's possible that in a country with so much wealth, so much prosperity, so much excess, there can also exist so much poverty? Or would that conversation make us a little nervous? Certainly that's not something we should talk about in church. And it gets way worse. (laughs) Um, Jesus also proclaims release to the captives and promises to let the oppressed go free. He's talking about spiritual oppression, right? Like Jesus isn't actually saying we should let real prisoners out of prison, is he? Because my goodness, if that's the case, we might actually have to talk about our own prison system and how broken it is. We might have to address the fact that our country uh, imprisons a higher percentage of its population than any other country in the world. We're not just talking democracies. We're talking Russia, Cuba, China, North Korea. We've got them all beat by a lot. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's possible that Americans are just more predisposed to crime. I don't feel like a criminal. (laughs) But I do know that the percentage of Americans in the prison system has doubled, more than doubled, actually, since 1985, the year I was born. And in that same time span, the for-profit prison industry has exploded. Locking people up is big business here. And Jesus might not be very happy with that. He might have a thing or two to speak into that. By far the most alarming prison statistic I found as I was kind of researching this this week, I don't know if you know this, I didn't know this, two-thirds of the prisoners in county and local prisons in the United States have never been found guilty of a crime. Two-thirds. That's not including federal, but like state and local prisons, two-thirds have never been found guilty. They're either awaiting trial, usually for years, or they accepted some kind of a plea deal that came with prison time without a trial. Jesus was here today. I think he might proclaim release to the captives. And I'm not sure how we'd feel about that one. I'm not sure how I would feel about that one. I think we might run him out of town for the first half of his message, the part that his crowd actually liked, and we didn't even get to the bad news yet. We're still in the good news. Jesus starts by proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is the stuff his hometown crowd eats up. But then he unpacks the bad news. (coughs) The people are behind him up to this point. They're with him. They're excited. Not only has the Messiah arrived, but he's one of us. He's from our hometown. 
That means that when he does turn the world upside down, we're going to have it the best because he's one of our own people. And so Jesus cites these two relatively obscure stories from the Old Testament. And Barb, you did pretty well with the names. Elijah and the widow from Sidon and Elisha's healing of Naaman the Syrian. You can read both those stories if you want. They're in the Bible, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. They're great stories. Basically, in both these stories, you have an anointed leader, a Messiah, if you will, in the form of Elijah and Elisha, who venture out beyond God's people to bless foreigners, folks in enemy territory, people who were outsiders who would not have been welcomed. Jesus points to those two stories to essentially say, I might be one of your own, but you don't own me. My call, my mission, my messiahship, it's actually not about you. And it's going to take me far away from here. It's going to take me to places that many of you will not be willing to go. The bad news translated for today might be that Jesus' mission is bigger than us. Bigger than the church, bigger than what happens within these four walls on Sunday morning. And if we're actually going to follow him, we're going to have to leave everything behind. Now, that's a hard message. And that's especially hard because this is an amazing church. I love you guys. I am so excited to see what happens here in the next 5, 10, 20 years as we journey together. And I see the excitement in your eyes when we talk about the vision of this church. When we talk about being the church that we believe God is calling us to be. That vision means being beacons of God's love, God's hope in our community. Welcoming young people and young families. Partnering with the college. Doing all we can to be a blessing to Brockport and the surrounding community. That's amazing. But as awesome as that vision is, it's going to be a painful one to implement for us. Because it hinges on the realization that all of this, everything we do as a church, everything we invest our time and energy in, it can't be for us. It's got to be for them. Now, one of the things that really impresses me about this church in particular is the sense of history here. It's pretty amazing. Many of you have been part of this congregation your whole lives. Like, there are some of you who were born here baptized here, grew up here, married here, raised kids and even grandkids here. We're talking 40, 50, I won't go further, but we're talking a long time, a rich history. And that's amazing. In a time like ours, where people are so transient, where kind of people pop in and pop out of our lives without warning, and where true, authentic lasting community is so hard to come by, our world needs to see communities like this that have stuck together through thick and thin. 
But a history like that also has its own sort of dark side. Something happens when you're part of the same church for decades. There's a sense of familiarity, of routine, of comfort in knowing how things are done. When you've been part of a church for this long, it can start to feel like my church. And to some extent, that's earned. I just want to honor that up front. If you've been here for decades, if you've stuck with this church through thick and thin, if you've been invested, involved, showed up, you've earned a level of influence, of power, of authority. And that's totally deserved. But here's the thing. It's the thing that's brought on by reading this passage. This church can never be the church God is calling us to be as long as it's my church or your church. We have to be God's church. We have to follow where God is telling us to go. And doing that is going to hurt. It's going to be painful to rethink the church's priorities. It's going to mean letting some ministries go so others can thrive. Rethinking how we use our resources, how we use our building, what our time together on Sunday morning looks like, what other ministries we decide to partner with and support outside the walls of this church. This is hard, hard stuff. But it is absolutely necessary if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be. Now there's a chance that within the next few months or the next few years, some of you will want to throw me off a cliff. (laughs) I realize that. And if we don't have moments like that, I'm not really doing my job. Because all of us, whether you've been here seven months or 70 years, we all have preferences. We all have expectations, hopes, and dreams. I think on some level we can all relate to that crowd in Nazareth, in that synagogue, being bombarded with the bad news that this isn't about us. But imagine what our church could do if we actually receive that message and internalize it. If we do follow God out into our community, think of the lives we could change and how we might change as well if we internalize that mantra, it's not about us. If you want a counterexample to the crowd in the synagogue, look at the disciples, the people who stuck with Jesus beyond this rocky start in Nazareth, and look at all the amazing things they got to witness and be a part of. They saw good news proclaimed to the poor. Captives released from prison. Recovery of sight to the blind. Deaf people hearing. Lame people walking. And even the dead being raised to new life. Let's pray. God, help us to recognize ourselves in the angry crowd at Nazareth.
Help us to reckon with the possibility that if you were here today, we might be the ones running you off a cliff. And Lord, we ask that you would empower us. Anoint us with your spirit. Give us the courage to find our place among the disciples, to announce good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and release to the captives. Empower us to follow Jesus boldly into our world, even when it hurts. Help us remember that this isn't about us. Give us the strength, God, to follow you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.